and that if you do, you will turn to Matthew chapter 9, from which Lisa just read a moment ago. You'll find our passage for today on page 814 in the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs, if one of those would serve you this morning. And as I always say, if one of those would serve you or someone you know, please take one. Bring it home, keep it, give it to someone else. That would be great. We would love for those Bibles to be used in that way. One of the most successful TV franchises of all time, now one of the most successful movie franchises of all time, I suppose, is the series Mission Impossible. I think my parents' generation enjoyed the show, which I believe would have been in the 60s. Does that sound right? And uh, my generation, perhaps a little more, or those even older than me, enjoying the movies. And in each installment, whether an episode of the show, or I suppose you could even call it an episode of the movie series, the context of the story is some matter of great importance being addressed by the characters in that story, often having worldwide implications, or at least national security implications. And that matter of great importance that these characters are dealing with being deemed in some way, for some reason, a mission that is seemingly impossible. Thus the title of the show and the movies. And I think that many Christians, if given truth serum, would have to admit that the calling of Jesus to engage in his mission of spreading the gospel, the good news of his kingdom, feels like a mission impossible. You read a passage like Lisa read for us a moment ago, or many others that are throughout the scriptures, and we say, but the enemy is so powerful. I'm not equipped to do this. I don't have the skills. I don't have the personality. I don't have the training. I don't have the tools. This mission is so big. It's to go to the whole world. Where do we even start? Well, today's passage addresses this beautifully, helpfully, and in some ways even painfully, convictingly. This passage is a kind of a prequel and a preview for the next big section that will follow in Matthew's gospel, which will be the second large discourse, if you will, from Jesus in Matthew's gospel. The first, of course, being his great sermon on the mount, which we've looked at already. The second, which will be more focused on mission. Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 8, this mission-focused discourse in uh, chapters 10 through 11. And what we have in this section at the end of chapter 9 is Matthew giving the impression, and really the whole section, verses, excuse me, chapters 10 through 11 and even into 12, Matthew giving the impression that to be a disciple of Jesus is to, and to live out the message of his great sermon and to follow this man, the man that had spent the last few chapters arguing, that Matthew had spent the last few chapters arguing was the Messiah, has at its core a life of mission. But not just a life of mission, a life of mission in a hostile environment. We'll see this throughout the rest of chapters 10 through 11 and even 12. So in other words, a seemingly impossible mission. A mission with opposition. Matthew will continue to give the impression that the movement that Jesus starts on 
his arrival on the scene here in Galilee would be characterized by a minority movement facing hostility along the way. But before Matthew records this discourse, starting in chapter 10, we get this transition statement of a sort at the end of chapter 9. But it's so much more than just a transition. It is a small section that's packed with big ideas and lots of meaning, and it's essential for us to understand as we seek to follow Jesus in faith in our own context today and here and every day and everywhere. What this passage is ultimately about, what it boils down to, is the ministry of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, and the calling of Jesus. It's simultaneously a kind of summary of all the verses that came before this passage, and it's also a a window into the very feelings of the Son of God in human flesh. It's also the reasoning that then drives the next section that follows. So it is a kind of hinge from one section to the next. And chapters 10 through 12 are going to have a focus that's centered on what it's like to be on the mission of Christ and what his disciples are called to do in light of having given him their allegiance. And that their allegiance to him will necessarily include adjusting their expectations about what a life of following Jesus is like. And it will necessarily include a life characterized by being on the same page as him the same mission that he is on. And so all throughout chapter 10, we're going to see Jesus sending disciples on the mission, instructing them that as they live on mission, they will face opposition. He will also promise rewards to those who are faithful. And then in chapters 11 and 12, we'll see instruction on and examples of opposition to the mission of Christ. But before we get there, which we will In the new year, we're going to pause after this week and take four Sundays to look at some Advent-themed passages. I'm looking forward to that very much. Before we get to chapters 10 and 11, we get this end of chapter 9 section. Now, some have suggested that perhaps these chapter and verse divisions aren't very helpful, as you may or may not know. The chapter and verse numbers were just added by people to make it helpful to find where you're, what you're looking for, but they're not inspired, they're not included in the original manuscripts of Scripture. And so some argue that the verse and chapter division here isn't helpful, and that it might be more helpful to uh, include 36 through 38 with the very next verse in chapter 10, verse 1 and following, because of the, the nature of the, of the narrative here. But I think it's fine to group them the way that we have them in front of us, because I think it makes sense for this passage to serve as a kind of a prequel, prequel for what's coming next, a kind of a transition between these two larger sections. So we have the ministry of Jesus the heart of Jesus, and the calling of Jesus. But I want to present those three parts of this passage to you in slightly more nuanced detail. And this is a text that has been burning in my heart all week long. I have been agonizing over how to say these things helpfully, clearly, and in a way that will glorify our Lord and encourage His people. The first is this, Jesus' ministry, commitments, and habits. That's what verse 35 shows us. Let's read it again. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So what does verse 35 say Jesus was doing? It says that he was doing exactly what we've already seen him doing throughout Matthew's gospel. He's doing three things in verse 35. He's 
teaching, he's proclaiming the gospel, and he is healing. And so that's the essence of Jesus' ministry activity, his commitments, his habits, if you will. And it's what he has always done. From his first appearance in Matthew's gospel as a grown man entering into public ministry, it's what we see. Right after his temptation in the desert, which we see earlier in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 4, verse 17, Matthew says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then as he moves throughout the region, we see him healing people over and over again. And then he's calling disciples and he's teaching them. And so what Matthew describes in verse 35 of chapter 9 is exactly what we have already seen and will continue to see throughout Matthew's gospel. Now notice here that, that there is a distinction between teaching and proclaiming here. There's certainly a sense to which they are similar, but there are also differences. For Jesus to be teaching would almost certainly have always included time in a synagogue where there would have been theological and doctrinal instruction, perhaps pertaining a lot to do with the law, and then sharing perhaps even a lot of his content from the Sermon on the Mount with, with different people in different contexts, with things like his you-have-heard-it-said statements, and then finishing with, but I say to you. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount you see this. Perhaps that's the kind of thing he would have taught in synagogues expositing the law, you might say, explaining what the law was really for, what it was really saying, how the Jews were to live in light of it. But the proclaiming piece of this passage would have been something different, certainly similar in ways, but different. And so if teaching was time in the synagogue, giving instruction about the law, then proclaiming the good news of his kingdom, as it says in verse 35, would have been spreading the word about his new way, about the way to a relationship with God through faith. That's what the good news is. That's what the gospel is. You can be saved from sin and restored to a relationship with your creator through faith in Jesus. Because remember, what Jesus came to do was not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it which means he would have simultaneously been upholding it and also rendering parts of it obsolete because Jesus lived it perfectly. He made the perfect atoning sacrifice, therefore, on the cross for those who had sinned against it. And then he rose again in demonstration of his power over the penalty of the law, which is death. And so what Jesus was doing when he was proclaiming the good news was all the things we've recently seen in Matthew's gospel about new wine and new wineskins and about the new way that the Messiah, he, Jesus, was bringing to pass and about some of the stuff we heard from Brian last week about out with the old and in with the new. And so in a sense, there is a distinction between what Jesus was doing here in teaching and proclaiming, or you could even say preaching. There was instruction and there was application. There was, perhaps you might say, a clarification of the old and a confrontation with the new. But of course, it also says that he was very busy healing people. And that's consistent with what Matthew has already shown us as well. Over and over again throughout all the Gospels, including the one we've been studying for over a year now, Jesus can be found healing someone. Whether it's a blind man in the section just previous to this one, or a paralytic at the beginning of chapter 9, or the many in chapter 8, verse 16, it's just all over the place. 
And it's something we will continue to see in the passages that follow. And so Jesus' ministry clearly involved healing, even though it was often connected to the need for forgiveness and Him proclaiming forgiveness of sin and then highlighting the importance of faith in coming to Him. But you know, sometimes the Gospel authors don't even include any of that stuff and just indicate that part of what Jesus was here to do was simply to care for needy people. And so verse 35 pretty much sums up what Jesus' life and ministry on his way to the cross, was all about. And friends, we mustn't think of Jesus' life and ministry as only having to do with the cross and the resurrection. And that is certainly the high point. That is certainly at the center of it all. That's certainly the heart of what we believe and the message that we share. Brothers and sisters, we must embrace the cross. We must embrace the empty tomb. We must believe in Jesus's atoning sacrifice and victorious resurrection if we are ever going to have a relationship with God through faith in him. We must. But we also must see Jesus's life and ministry, his habits and commitments, if you will, as being squarely centered on these things pre-Calvary just as much as we see him heading to Calvary, that hill on which he was crucified. Because, my friends, without his perfect life and without his fulfillment of prophecy, without his messianic ministry, his ministry on the cross and in the tomb wouldn't matter. If he was to have died just an ordinary, decent man, even an innocent man, ultimately it's not really a big deal. It's just another one in a long list of unjust crimes that have taken place throughout world history. And if he was crucified as a sinner, well, then he just deserves it. And so we must see these words in verse 35 as massively important. He was indeed the Messiah. He was demonstrating his Messiahness, if I can say it that way, through teaching the truth, through spreading the good news of his new way, and healing broken people and caring for the needy. But also in this transition section, right at its center of this passage before us today, is something so central, so core to the life and ministry of Jesus that we must see. Second, verse 36 shows us Jesus' feelings towards vulnerable sheep. Verse 36 says this, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This verse contains what commentator and scholar Doug O'Donnell calls the cornerstone of the mission of the church, the compassionate heart of Jesus. This verse is in the context of this sort of summary of Jesus' ministry, and it's in this sort of summary statement that Matthew notes that as Jesus is doing his ministry work, going around teaching, proclaiming, and healing, some things are happening. First of all, he's observing people around him. Secondly, he's noting their condition. And third, he's responding to it. Do you see that here in verse 36? He saw the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw the crowds, so he's observing the people around him. He sees that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, so he's noting their condition. And as a result, He's having compassion on them. He's responding 
to what he is observing. And so first of all, this observing the people around him, we see in verse 36 that it's the crowds that he's observing. This would have been the spectators of the last several sections who have now become the object of Jesus' attention in a different way. We don't know exactly how all this worked out. We know that the focus of Jesus' attention often started on his immediate group of disciples, but there were crowds that were gathering to hear him preach, to hear him teach, to see him heal, and to even bring others to be healed by him. And so however this all worked, whether what's going on here chronologically is just this growing more and more large crowd gathering around him, eventually Jesus observes these crowds who had come to see him, and now he sees them. And it's his attention on them that's going to lead to his response. But second, he notes their condition that they are, the text says, harassed and helpless. Now, those exact words can be translate, are translations of a word that can communicate oppression, can communicate exhaustion, it can communicate a lack of direction, or even all of the above. And so the point is that they are in trouble. But the phrase that follows it, like sheep without a shepherd, gives fuller meaning to clearly what Jesus is observing here. This phraseology, this imagery, is consistent with Multiple Old Testament passages, including the ones that we just read this morning, very much on purpose. This is a common, the, the image of shepherds and sheep is a common Old Testament image regarding the relationship between God and his people and their need for leadership and guidance. In fact, Matthew had already used the image himself in chapter 2, verse 6, and he's going to use it again in chapter 10, verse 6, and then in chapter 15, and then in chapter 18. So it's a common biblical image of God's people being like sheep and him being like their shepherd. And of course, it does remind us of the passage we read today from Ezekiel 34 about how the shepherds of Israel had failed and how God was going to take it upon himself then to care for Israel his people, that those he had appointed as under-shepherds were supposed to have cared for. That kind of relates to Jesus' mindset and his actions towards the Pharisees. Because after all, they were religious leaders. And the crowds, as a result of their leadership here in verse 35, are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The religious leaders of the Jews at this time were supposed to shepherd God's people. We're supposed to teach them the truth. We're supposed to lead them to understand how it is that they could have a relationship with God and relate to Him. But all that resulted from their ministry was this harassed and helpless group of people unable to lift the heavy burden of the law and the unbiblical laws and traditions and rules of the Pharisees off of their own backs. So here Jesus sees these harassed and helpless people like sheep without a shepherd. Now soon, in just the end of chapter 11, Jesus will invite people to take his yoke, not the yoke of the Pharisees. That image, of course, referring to a, a picture of oxen or beasts of burden being yoked together and moving forward. But before he says that, at the end of this upcoming second larger discourse, he sees these sheep and he observes what's going on with them, and then he feels something. That's why I say he's responding to it. Verse 36 says that he had compassion for them. Now this word, 
in the original language in Greek is a word that has no English word that's quite parallel to it to communicate exactly what it means. And so it's translated for us compassion, which is a very helpful word. It's totally suitable. But in our minds, it doesn't go quite as far as what the original word means. Uh, R.T. France, another scholar and commentator, says that it is the strongly emotional Greek verb which speaks of a warm, compassionate response to a need. This word has to do with sympathy. It has to do with pity. It has to do even with empathy, if by that you mean kind of fellow feeling. And then, yes, compassion. But at the heart of this word translated for us compassion is the idea of a gut response. In fact, you could translate it super literally to feel in the viscera. So a visceral gut response. Now for us, the idea of these kinds of compassionate, sympathetic, pity feelings is more often associated, at least in our, in our language, with the idea of our hearts. But in Jesus's day, in his context, in that region and in that time, the visceral feeling that one can get in their stomach is what was more often referenced. And you actually can probably relate to this a little more than you might think. Have you ever felt a knot in your stomach because something upsets you so much? Have you ever had a kind of sympathetic, unsettled, even upset feeling in your gut when you see an injury, either in person or on video, from someone else? Some of you go, when you see something gross happen. That's kind of that gut feeling. Perhaps you've even felt... A feeling of being twisted up inside because of grief, whether for yourself or for someone else going through pain. That's the kind of thing this is talking about. A visceral response of pity and sympathy and compassion. And every time Matthew uses this verb that we can't quite perfectly translate, there is a connotation of emotional relating to people. But listen carefully. It's also closely connected to a practical response that follows. And so this idea of compassion is just as much an idea of response as it is an idea of feelings. Which is why I said that the third thing we see Jesus doing in verse 36 is responding. Because he does respond to it with feelings, but he also responds to it with action. Jesus' compassion on the harassed and helpless crowds is an indictment on the failed shepherding of the Jewish religious leaders. They were supposed to care for these people like sheep, but they failed, and in fact, they acted more like wolves than shepherds. Jesus says that in Matthew 23, verse 4. And so Jesus is, maybe maybe a version you have in front of you might say, moved with compassion. I quote Doug O'Donnell again. He says, Christian mission starts with compassion. Without compassion, we do not have authentic Christian mission. Because at the heart of Jesus' heart for mission, this response that comes in in the next two verses to his observing of these people, this heart of Jesus is the heart of compassion. That's the heart of the mission of Jesus. That's the heart of Jesus, the man. You know why? Because without real, we've got to see this because without real compassion, mission can turn into a self-righteous, prideful pursuit of success. 
You could develop an idol of missions. You can worship the idea of doing ministry. Or even pious action without pious heart. If I can use sort of abstract ideas like that. But this is what is to be at the heart of ministry for all of us. Compassion. I mean, come on, brothers and sisters, let's get real. How often are we observing the people around us at all, let alone with compassion? How often do you notice people around you at all? Or are you just on your own mission, your own agenda, perhaps looking down at your screen so much that you don't even notice the people around you and then noting their condition? And then, of course, how often could it be said of us that we look at the people around us with compassion? I mean, isn't it true that we could look around our own environments in our day, in our place, in our time, and see the same kind of problem that Jesus saw? Sheep without a shepherd? People harassed and helpless? You know, friends, it's easy to look around us and see some smiling faces to see the riches, the pleasing aesthetics of society and fashion and art and athletics and just assume, yeah, pretty much things are pretty good in our society. But friends, we've got to be realistic about how messed up everything is. We also have to realize how lost so many people are. You know, I have to say, Kate and I and Brian and Holly felt this very keenly Just last week, we were blessed by the very generous and kind gift of the deacons to give the four of us a a night out together on a double date to go watch a really awesome concert by the a cappella music group Pentatonix. Perhaps you've heard of them. They did a Christmas show. It It was a blast. It was beautiful. It was fun. But at the same time, we also couldn't help but notice that there was something horribly wrong. It was a Ball, the ball arena, I think that's what it's called, was filled with 12,000 people screaming in worship of these people who, by all accounts, are opposed to God. Of course, I don't know what their hearts are like, but some of their words and actions indicate that. And so it wound up being this simultaneously really fun, really festive and enjoyable, while simultaneously kind of heartbreaking experience. On more than one occasion... Brian, Holly, Kate, and me would turn to each other after a song was over and say, say something to that effect. This is simultaneously awesome and heartbreaking. What I'm saying is that there is just so much trash that our world is pushing so hard in our faces. And the evil one is so clever to mix the good with the bad that sometimes we don't even realize we're being entranced into thinking that things are better than they really are. And so no wonder there are so many lost No wonder there are so many in the church, I don't just mean ours, but Christian church throughout the whole world who are apathetic about ministry, who lack compassion for the dire straits of the millions of lost sheep in this world, in our nation, in our state, and in our cities. And so let this be a call to every Christian within the sound of my voice. May the heart and may the mind of Christ be our hearts and minds as well. May we observe people around us. May we note their condition and may we respond with compassionate action. Friends, wake up. Look around you and respond. Now listen, 
you can't just make compassion happen inside you. You're either feeling it and acting it, or you're not. But you can pray, as we heard in E412 classes this morning, that the Lord would move in your heart and mold your heart and, and lead your life to a place of responding with compassion that leads to actions and not just feelings. So friends, pray for God to change your heart if you need it. To change your heart to one of compassion and sympathy for the lost rather than the mean, angry, judgmental, condescending, self-righteous, hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. Looking at those people who sin in ways that are so heinous and so evil that you can barely even look at them, let alone get into their lives and tell them the good news of Jesus. So pray for God to do that because only God can do that within you. You can't muscle it up. And then go and act. Follow Jesus' heart of compassion. His, his compassion, his feelings of visceral, gut-twisting sorrow at the state of his sheep led him to act. It led him to come to this earth in the first place, but it led him even in this very moment to respond how he would in just a verse, which we'll see in a moment here. Feelings leading to real action. Friends, I'm not talking about a social media like or share. I can do some good, to be sure. But you know, I'm not even sure Jesus would be on social media if he was here with us. He'd be too busy actually doing the work of the ministry, getting into people's lives, not just reading about it and scrolling through it and then sharing it. And so that compassion-fueled response of action does lead us to number three, which is Jesus' call to zeal for his mission. That's what we see here in verses 37 through 38. And that is Jesus' response to these crowds whom he felt compassion for in his gut. This authoritative call to his disciples to follow him in engagement with his mission. Now, this is something that's going to be fleshed out more in the next verses, which we'll see in the new year. And in fact, it'll actually be the climactic finish to the whole book at the end of chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 is the Great Commission. But it's at the heart of this passage, and it's the climax of this passage. It's a command. Read verses 37 through 38 with me again. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The disciples, right there at the beginning of verse 37, the disciples or his disciples, makes most sense to be referring to a larger group than those that we think of as the twelve. Because in the next verse, chapter 10, verse 1, he then calls to him his 12 right after he says in verse 37 what he says to his disciples. So it's probably a larger group of the disciples in verse 37 than just the 12 whom we'll get to know a little better very soon here. And so it's, it's everyone who's following him. It's not just the 12 because there were, there were multiple people, not just the 12, who, who followed him. And what does he say to those who follow him? He says, essentially, there are a lot of people in need of a compassionate response from others too. A compassionate response that leads to action, that leads to workers going to the place where 
there is a harvest, a gathering of people into my kingdom. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus uses harvest language here? If you know your Old Testament very well, you'll know that harvest language almost always points to the idea of reaping in a kind of a negative way, usually referring to judgment such as passages that it would have talked about separating the wheat from the chaff or some other image like that. The harvest being a connotation of judgment and condemnation. But here, Jesus is not using it that way. He is using, using it in a very positive way, describing a gathering kind of a harvest. And so here, once again, is the Messiah turning expectations on their heads. Because we know he will conquer every enemy. He will eradicate sin one day. But right now, he's not here to condemn. He's here to save. And so that transforms even the harvest language that perhaps the Jews would have been accustomed to or maybe expected when using a word like that. Instead of using it to talk about judgment, he applies it to a great crop of people who are desperately in need of the good news of his new way and these people who are, as it were, ripe for gathering. But he also says that this harvest is plentiful. There are many of them, but the laborers are few. That's an interesting phrase. It might refer to the fact that Jesus was pretty much alone, aside from John the Baptist, in the proclaiming of the kingdom message at that point. So maybe Jesus is just literally saying that now it's time for there to be more people than just me and maybe John to take up this responsibility and, and go with this message. We know, of course, the big great commission comes at the end of Matthew's gospel after he died and rose, but perhaps that's, that's simply what he means. It's just me, and it's maybe my cousin John, and we need more. But whatever exactly he is saying, and exactly he means by the laborers are few, it can't mean anything less than the fact that the need was great for many laborers to rise up and go. Now you might expect then, verse 38, to say, therefore, go. But it doesn't. Do you see that? It doesn't say the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore go into the harvest. No, he says, therefore pray. Oh boy, my friends, buckle up. I'm going there. Friends, this is why we have prayer lunches every month. Part of why anyway. Because we've got to be praying to the Lord of the harvest like Jesus calls us to. He doesn't say the need is great, so get to work, although that's certainly implied and even explicitly stated in other places. But here he says the need is great, so get to praying. And I think there are five things that this means for us. I don't have them on the screen. You'll just have to, if you like writing them down, I'll try to speak it slowly. It means that it's God who does the work of harvesting, number one. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. It's God who does the work of harvesting. So that's why praying to the Lord of the harvest is necessary. Because without him, none of it happens at all. And we've got to understand that in a real sense, brothers and sisters, God doesn't need you at all. Number two, it also means that the Lord's mechanism 
for accomplishing the mission includes prayer. And this is one of the things we've discussed together and benefited from in our E412 series on prayer. And for those of you who have been here, just harken back to all that stuff that Brian's been teaching about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of his people and how that is a a sort of a divinely mysterious thing, but that both of those prongs of the truth are true and undeniable. God is totally sovereign in control of all things, and also God has ordained that it is through prayer that his will is accomplished, or it's at least one of the means of accomplishing his will. So it's God's work. God's mission requires prayer. Third, praying is more foundational than doing. Oh, my friends, let that sink in, please. Redeemer Bible Church, we have got to be people, we have got to be individuals, we have got to be families, we have got to be a church for whom praying is like breathing. Because without our prayers, aspects of the mechanism, I'm trying to speak carefully, the mechanism or the economy of God's divine missional plan are missing. Part of the plan for mission to be accomplished includes the prayer of his people. And so how might a failure to pray then affect the results of the mission? I don't want to speculate too far on that because I don't know. God doesn't need us in the same way that we think of needing. But at the same time, he has ordained that prayer is part of the way that these things work. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. That's, that's more for a long sit-down, back-and-forth discussion between brothers and sisters. But clearly there is a connection between the prayers of God's people and the results of his mission such that Jesus is saying that prayer is the foundational thing to start with when you have a burden for the lost. Yes, go out there. Go. Like Jesus will say later and like he'll say right away here. But start with prayer. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers. And then you know what happens? The fourth meaning is that praying will lead to action. Those who pray for a harvest will be invested in that harvest happening. They're going to be amped up about what God is doing. They're going to grow in their own zeal and their energy for the mission the more and more that it's on their hearts and minds. You know what's going to result more often than not is those very people going into the harvest and being part of it. The fifth meaning is this. Before anyone gets to praying or anyone gets to going, the Lord of the harvest is already at work. He is behind the scenes He is on the scene. He's making plans for the future. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is sovereign over it. And for those of you who struggle to be courageous, who struggle to hold worldly pleasures as loosely as you should, this ought to encourage you. The Lord of the harvest is at work. He is in control. And He's the one you're praying to. Back in the... 1800s, in 1857 to be precise, a man named Jeremiah Lanfear led what was known or is known as the prayer revival of New York City. Jeremiah Lanfear developed a burden in this time of the 1850s 
to see the people of God gather to pray for mission in their city and certainly around the nation and around the world. And it started with just six people, including him. And to make a long story short, in six months, it became 10,000 people gathering in different places around the city, all connected together, praying for the mission of the Lord to influence their city. Eventually, word spread to other cities like Chicago, Cleveland, and St. Louis, where it's reported that they had about 2,000 in each of their places, in their own gatherings. And you know what was happening in the 1850s in the U.S. at that time? There was a financial crisis. There was civil war looming and disunity in the nation. There was spiritually listless and apathetic Christians and churches. Does that sound familiar? They had a five-minute limit for everyone who would pray. There was no like pastoral leadership to make this happen. There wasn't a sermon. There weren't songs. It was a group of people who would all get together and take five minutes each praying for the Lord of the harvest to bring about the results of the mission. And do you know what happened? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were converted to faith in Christ. It's the great prayer revival. That's what it's referred to. Yes. Imagine what God could and will do in and through Redeemer Bible Church if we prayed like this. A Scottish pastor in his observance from over the pond, it became so known that even a Scottish pastor around that time said it this way, new spiritual life was imparted to the dead, talking about people becoming Christians, and new spiritual health imparted to the living. This is what happens, what can happen when the people of God pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. And did you notice that I haven't even said anything about that word earnestly yet? He calls his followers to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. And immediately I just have to ask myself, how often do I pray earnestly? How often do you pray earnestly? with urgency, with emotion behind it, with feeling, with zeal, with energy, and repetitively. I mean, do we ever pray like that for the lost? Do we ever pray like that at all? Now, friends, when we study and read a passage like this or hear a sermon on it, we need to know how to process and deal with feelings of guilt properly because no doubt some of you are feeling kinds of guilty feelings when you read and hear a passage like this and there's a lot of confusion about this in christians and churches in my experience two hands on the one hand if you're feeling guilty about not praying for the harvest and not going into the harvest and not having a heart of compassion for the lost and you're not praying earnestly there's a sense in which that guilt that you're feeling is good if it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit in you. And we are not a church. May we never be a church driven by guilt and shame and just feeling bad about ourselves every time we get together. Absolutely not. We must never be that way. But we also must not harden our consciences to the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you just ignore those feelings of hopefully godly guilt that leads to repentance, then your conscience is going to get hard. 
But godly guilt that leads us to repentance leads to change. And so, brother, sister, Christian friend, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Jesus loves you, Jesus has saved you, and Jesus is coming for you soon. Amen? But I also do want you to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and do something in response if you need to. And on the other hand, sometimes this passage, maybe you've even heard this passage preached as if Jesus is just waiting for everyone to get their act together so that people can finally get saved. Oh, when are they going to start praying so I can do my thing? No, not at all. No wonder people start to feel bad and get a wrong kind of guilt. Remember, my friends, it is not up to us for the mission to be accomplished. That's Jesus' job. You start putting that on people, start putting that on yourself, you're going to be even more depressed and exhausted than you already are. The fact is, since Jesus said this over 2,000 years ago, what has happened? The greatest movement in the history of the world has been sweeping over the entire planet. What Jesus called his disciples to do in this passage has been happening. Praise God. Nations people groups, ethnicities all over the world have heard the message of the good news of a relationship with God through Jesus and they have responded with faith and repentance. We heard about one of them today. Praise God. And so yes, there are many who have never believed and there are many dark corners of the globe that remain and our nation can be included in one of them. But the mission of Jesus has succeeded, is succeeding, and will continue to succeed all the way until his return, which is coming soon. And so no, this call is also not a call to respond with guilt. It's a call to join the greatest movement of all time. It's a call to the most exciting mission anyone has ever been on. Jesus is at work. The mission is moving, and he continues to call for more workers. He's calling for people to pray for more workers, and he is calling for people to go as workers. He's calling you right now. And I know you feel overwhelmed. You think your life is too busy. You think the harvest is too hard and that your own gifts and talents aren't good enough. But my friend, fear not. Because the history of redemption has been characterized by people who thought themselves incapable, unqualified, and unable to do the mission that God called them to, but then God's power prevailing in and through them in their weakness. And it will be the same with you when you submit to his call. What hope! The call to prayer and the call to go when sent is not a call to cynical, despondent, reluctant duty. No, it is a call to live in expectant hope of what God is doing. The impression that Matthew gives in the coming words may be that Christians are in a minority group in a hostile world called to a mission that seems impossible, but the reality is that we're called to join a movement that is triumphantly on the move, advancing on the enemy, and successful. And as we follow our Lord's example of His heart of mission, we will see it in our lives as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this feeble 
preacher has not even begun to do justice to the message here. I feel my weakness keenly, my inability to work up the strength to say it perfectly or to encourage my brothers and sisters in their feelings of weakness or even to bring thoughts of admonition and exhortation to those who need to change things. But you have...